case. Hope Not Hate are basically controlling Britain. Hope Not Hate, an alluring name for those more concerned about social justice than truth. These backwards, these backward thinking, virtue, sig virtue signaling. Hello and welcome to the Hope Not Hate podcast. It's the first of 2020. Um, it feels like forever since we've done a Hope Not Hate podcast. The end of last year turned out to be a little bit busier than we expected with a big election. And then it was, of course, Christmas and New Year and everyone was off having a bit of a break and catching up on sleep. So it's been a while, but we're really excited to be back. Um, thanks for sticking with us. Um, we're kicking off 2020 with a really exciting podcast that we've been looking to put out for quite a while now. Um, and it's for those of you that listen quite regularly, you'll know that we sometimes do interviews with academics and scholars and activists that produce research that has you know links to something that we do at Hope Not Hate. And we're kicking off this year with a really exciting interview with uh, based on a really, really interesting book that many of you may have seen. Um, yeah, and this is an interview with Angela Saini. Um, this is the, the award-winning science journalist, author and broadcaster. Some of you might have seen her in the BBC series recently, Eugenics. Science Greatest Scandal, but we're here to talk more closely about her recent book, Superior, The Return of Race Science. And this was published last year in the summer of 2019 by Fourth Estate and Beacon Press, and it was named the Book of the Year by the Financial Times, The Guardian, The Telegraph, The Sunday Times, amongst others. Um, the list goes on. Uh, you can see why we were really excited to talk about the book. Uh, everyone was raving about it. Um, and this, of course, she's produced lots of work in this area, which is really interesting to us. She also, her previous book was called Inferior, How Science Got Women Wrong, which was published back in 2017. And that's already been translated into 11 different languages. Um, so across this interview, she talks uh, kind of really interestingly about her work and what she finds in the area of, especially about race science. Um, she spoke to us about this kind of strange and dangerous world of falsehoods, talking about mainstream acceptance of race science, uh, talking about its relationship today to conspiracy theories and discussions around free speech and identity politics. And she also explained how genuine science continues to undermine the ideas uh, that society has inherited from race science and how to tackle the new ways these ideas are seeping into the mainstream. Really, really interesting stuff, really, really important stuff. So I hope you enjoy it as much as we did uh, recording it and as much as we did kind of listening to it back. Um, yeah, so enjoy. This is Angela Saini. Race science, so this belief that we can be subdivided into races and then that there is some kind of hierarchy between those races or that there are innate, deep differences between these racial groups is an idea that was around for a really long time. It underpins slavery, colonialism, um, genocide. I mean, many of the horrors of the 19th and 20th, early 20th centuries uh, underpinned by this scientific idea. I'm Angela Saini, I'm a science journalist, and the focus of my work really is um, understanding why scientists pick the topics that they do to research. Science is not politically neutral, it never has been. So if you look at Nazi Germany, for instance, we know that scientific institutions were involved in supporting what the government were doing. My last book, Inferior, and my current book, Superior, really look at how that bias plays out, uh, what the consequences are for everyday people like us in terms of understanding who we are and how we slot that into the politics, but also the ways in which sometimes scientific and intellectual arguments get used to defend political agendas. Um, and I think particularly in Superior, which looks at race, my last book, Inferior, looked at gender. Um, in Superior, I think 
um, the complicity of scientists and some scientific institutions in far-right and racist projects throughout history has been kind of crucial and I think it's difficult to understand how popular um, certain movements have been if you don't understand the intellectual bases of some of them. We do associate race science with something that belongs to the past and particularly that belongs to the, maybe the 1920s, 1930s and Nazi Germany um, because we associate eugenics and Nazi racial hygiene with that period of time and just that nation for some reason. But of course for a couple of hundred years race science was practiced all over the world but particularly in Western Europe and in the US. It was really popular and it was very mainstream. Eugenics in its early days was hugely popular. Loads of people bought into it from across the political spectrum, I have to add. So not just on the right, but also liberals and left-wings and progressives. It was seen as a very progressive idea. But we have to remember that because it was so mainstream and because it was so popular, it doesn't just belong to the Second World War. You know, when we, when we think about eugenics and we think about the evil people who perpetrated the Holocaust, for instance, well, that came about not just because of the evil actions of a few, but because many people around them, very many, you know, and, and I'm talking hundreds of thousands of people, even millions of people, supported these ideas and went along with you them. You know, I used to think that all racists were just uneducated and stupid, and that's why they believed the things they did, and that if we could just educate everybody, that we wouldn't have racism anymore. But then uh, you see very many educated racists. <laughs> The prejudices that we have go beyond that and in some ways we pick and choose the information when you're educated and you're racist you pick and choose the information that suits you um, there's something known as confirmation bias a psychological term which means that um, you choose the information that you like and you dismiss the information that you don't like and that reconfirms and reinforces your biases over time and we all enter into that it's actually even harder in the age of the internet to draw people away from that because we select the people that we want to listen to and we can super select these people you know before you might you may have just bought the guardian and no, no, no other newspaper but then at least you would have got some spread of information now you can super select <laughs> the people you want to hear and this is what people do scientific racists they are not stupid people many of them um, they have their small closed communities and they cannot understand why others outside that community do not share their views. I mean they're so far down that rabbit hole, so convinced that what they believe is the facts and that somehow even mainstream science is under the yoke of some kind of liberal conspiracy, that the rest of us are just blind to the facts or somehow trying to suppress the actual facts and they are party to what's really going on in the world. We, you know, how do you draw people out of that? There are very many scientists who are concerned about what's happening in their field in terms of the abuse of their data and their ideas. There are many governments around the world who would like to be able to co-opt science in order to make their ethnic nationalist claims. Um, and one thing I've been working out with other scientists, with academics in this field and with counter-extremists who work in this area is how do we draw people out of these conspiracy theories that they have around race? A belief in biological race is a conspiracy theory and it is as much a conspiracy theory as flat earthers or 
anti-vaxxers or climate change deniers. They have built entire edifices around it and they've been doing it for decades. Trying to draw someone out of that level of extremism is not easy. It's really, really tough and we know from people, for instance, who work with drawing people out of Islamist terrorism or far-right terrorism, it can take years to de-radicalize even one person. Um, so drawing an entire community of people who have convinced themselves that human that we are not one human species, that we are subspecies, and that somehow the economic fortunes of the world has been decided by the fact that different nations have different intellectual potential based on race, um, that we are genetically so different that immigration is dangerous, that racial mixing is dangerous, who really sincerely believe these things is not easy. And the answer is not education because they're not open to the counter-arguments. It's very possible that they've read all the counter-arguments, but they just don't want to hear them. The fact that there are racists within academia, and there always have been, uh, within government, within politics, within you know all the intellectual classes, I think says that we cannot treat this as a problem we can educate ourselves out of. Racism is beyond that. It is a belief that people cling to in the same way that you might cling to a religious belief. You know, it is deep-rooted. This is about prejudice. This is about something visceral within you. And evidence in some ways doesn't always matter. This is why, you know, I often say to people online, don't argue with racists. You can argue, you know, you can argue points of fact, you know, someone is uncertain or they're curious about human difference, as we all are, we all want to understand, and you can argue those kind of things. But a racist, someone who's educated themselves into a position, who really desperately believes that they have the evidence on their side, side because they've cherry-picked what they want, they've manipulated whatever information they have to fit their theory, um, there is no point arguing with them. And in fact, arguing makes things worse because it makes them believe that they have an intellectual argument and they are worth debating for that reason. That somehow they are trying to convince you rather than the other way around. They're trying to bring you around to their point of view. Um, I think we have a huge amount to learn from the tactics that uh, scientific racists deploy online. So one is language. They have a very sophisticated, clever way of manipulating the language to make themselves seem reasonable and sound not like racists at all, but uh, like curious, skeptic scholars. Um, so, for example, they won't even call themselves racists, they will call themselves race realists. That is a euphemism, essentially, for racist, but um, it means that we believe that race is real. This is our scientific position, that race is real. The kind of work that they want to do, for example, looking into intellectual differences between racial groups, the reason that isn't done is because there is no good way of doing that. You can't do it. They build these straw men, and then they put them out there and we're expected to fight them. We're supposed to argue with them. And scientists do enter into argument with these people. And in some ways that only gives them more ammunition because they're like, well, look at us. We've got a scientific position and legitimate scientists are arguing with us. Um, so that makes us just as legitimate as you. They've created a debate where a debate never existed in the scientific community. They've inserted themselves into the, these forums and then created a debate out of essentially nothing, like flat earthers have done. 
You know, they've created a controversy where no controversy ever existed. There is no doubt in the, you know, among scientists out there that the world is round. We've known that for a really long time. And like I said, they're only a minority, but it's enough. Sometimes a minority is enough to sway public opinion. You don't need a massive number of people for doubt to start creeping up in people's heads. And before you know it, you have a problem on your hands. They're trying to sow mistrust of academia of mainstream science, uh, accuse it of being anti-science, accuse it of being against academic, academic freedom, using arguments that will appeal to the liberals and progressives among us, because we think, yeah, academic freedom's a good thing, we should be on your side, forgetting that when they call for it, they're not calling for academic freedom for everyone, they just want it for themselves in order to be able to insert their particular ideology within academia, an ideology with it, which itself is antithetical to freedom, which denies the science, number one, but also denies the rights and freedoms of people within academia. If you're not aware of who these people are and how they operate, it can feel as though the demands that they're making are legitimate and fair. You have to really understand them to know exactly what they're up to. It's really tough when we talk about identity and origin and what it means to be from a place because um, these ideas we draw so much of who we are from these ideas and I think this is one of the things I landed on when I was writing Superior is that we can talk about the science day in and day out but ultimately these are questions of belonging um, and who has a right to be somewhere and who doesn't um, often that's what racism comes down to, you know, who has a right to a space or a place and who doesn't. And um, the difficulty is that identity politics, which I'm not against because I think we need identity politics in order to fight for our rights. It's very difficult to fight for your rights if you can't assert your identity when you've been oppressed on the basis of that identity historically. So we need it, but at the same time, um, it is a game that can be played by anyone. And this is what the right have started to do. So one of the people I profile in the book is Steve Saylor. Steve Saylor, um, who was a journalist at one point in the US, and he developed this idea. He is involved in race science, race realism, human biodiversity is one of his kind of phrases that he likes to use. And um, his idea was that if you know, black Americans, for instance, or Hispanic Americans can vote as blocks, if we can treat them as blocks, then why not white working class Americans? Why can we not mobilize them as a block and get them to treat their identity as something sacred that we need to kind of protect? Um, and for a long time, politicians ignored that kind of thing because it felt like dog whistling and, you know, it just felt too volatile. But actually, that's a strategy that Trump took in his election campaign, and it worked. Um, and that's why we have to be careful of identity politics, is that it can be weaponized by absolutely anybody. And we have to be careful when we talk about differences and we talk about groups, um, exactly the terms on which we're doing it and why we're doing it. It's the biologization of identity that is the real danger um, when we when it comes to ethnic nationalism because then that implies that we are not the same that the differences 
are somehow innate and inequalities that we see in society are because of those differences and um, that is just scientifically not an accurate way to think about inequality in society. Um, so we have to, to some extent, wear our, our identities a bit lightly, not wear them too heavily, to understand that when we're fighting for rights as a group, that that's not because that group is somehow special in some biological way, but because of the historic oppression that group has faced. For example, I see in feminist circles a lot, people castigating white men all the time. And so white men are the problem. If we could just get rid of white men, that somehow everything would be fine. That is not the problem. The problem is a system that has elevated a certain group of people over other groups of people. We are not fighting groups. We are fighting the system. We're fighting an ideology, structures that are set up to favor some people over others. And I think the trap that we fall into when we start castigating groups or vilifying groups or elevating ourselves as groups is that we lose that sense of common humanity. We lose that sense of nuance and we have less empathy with the individual. Um, but these are subtle things. These are really difficult things to navigate. There are uh, one of the beautiful things about science, and this is why I love being a science journalist, is many of the things that you learn um, overturn stereotypes and overturn things that you thought before. So there's a lot of genetics, especially in, in the book, that will completely turn on its head whatever you imagine about identity and race. And one of the examples I give is that of Cheddar Man. So um, a couple of years ago, it was in all the headlines because there was a TV program about it on Channel 4. But um, in the early 20th century, the bones of one of the oldest skeletons we've ever found in Britain was discovered in caves in Cheddar Gorge somewhere, which is why he's called Cheddar Man. They were something like 8,000 or 10,000 years old, really old. And of course, when you find something like that, the first thing scientists want to do and archaeologists want to do is understand who was this person? What did they look like? How did they live? And there's only so much information you can get from bones, to be honest. You can't tell a huge deal. Um, and there were, over the years, reconstructions made of his face. And one of those early reconstructions showed kind of a guy with a white face and long trailing brown hair and a moustache. I mean, we couldn't have known what his facial hair was like, but, you know, guessing he had a moustache. And for a long time, that was the assumption that early Britons would have looked not that dissimilar to modern day white Britons. And in fact, a few years ago, now that techniques are available that we can analyze DNA, and I should say here that there are actually no black and white genes. You can't accurately or faithfully tell somebody's skin color, but there was a high probability based on the variance in this skeleton that he had dark skin, very dark skin. In fact, by modern standards, he would be considered black and he had blue eyes. Um, this wasn't a huge shock to geneticists because uh, from analysis of other bones found throughout Western Europe from that period, we know that hunter-gatherers in Western Europe around that time probably also had dark skin and blue eyes. That was the kind of common um, facial features. It undermined these ideas of racial purity, of you know Britain always being a white country because we know that the earliest Britons were not white, they had dark skin. What does that mean for your identity then? It is really one of the most fundamental things about Britain, and I've seen it myself as a brown woman living in this country, is that um, it's, it is my brownness above everything else 
that for some people disqualify me from being fully British or fully English. You know, that is the point at which I can, I could, you know, in every other way, be fully English. I could, I could be like a third generation person living here. I'm, you know, I'm second generation immigrant. Yeah, I speak perfect English. I, I was born and brought up here. And in every way, I consider myself British. But it's my skin colour that some people think disqualifies me. Well, then what do you do when you know that Britons weren't always white? <laughs> what do you do with that then? What do you do when you know it wasn't that long? You know, 10,000 years is not a huge amount of time. It's not 100,000 years. When you know that people in the past didn't look the way they did now, that there's always been migration into this country. From the beginning, there's always been a churn. There's always been change. And there is no racially pure person anywhere. It just doesn't exist. It never, has never existed. That is a myth that we've created. This is the beauty of science. It really does undermine our ideas when we have good evidence. All that evidence has done for the last 70 years since the end of the Second World War is reinforce that we are one human species, that we are so similar. In fact, we are more homogeneous as a species than chimpanzees. There is less genetic diversity in the human species than there is in chimpanzees. That's how alike we are. We're remarkably alike. You don't see that kind of homogeneity in hardly any other species. We're very similar, but we kind of fool ourselves because of culture and language and all these, you know, environmental and social and cultural differences between us, that we are somehow different breeds. We're nowhere near that. We are all this, pretty much the same. In the early days of human evolution, scientists used to imagine, they don't think in these terms now, but they used to think that evolution was kind of a, like a ladder moving upwards towards perfection, and that certain races had moved further up the ladder than others. Um, and that there was still a way to go, that we could still be perfected. Actually, we don't work that way. All species in the world are best suited and adapted to the environment that they live in. So we as humans, our particular skill is being able to adapt the environment to how we want it to be. And uh, that is our adaptation, that we have that, this skill and this ability to be able to not just adapt to our environment, but to suit our environment to us, which is why we've proliferated all over the world. We live everywhere. And um, so this idea that we can be perfected somehow, that as we as we are, is not the end of things, <laughs> that there is something better to come. And what does that better look like? And when we think of better, we think of maybe more intelligent, taller. You know, depending on your racialized ideas, you know, under Aryan theory, um, Arianism proposed that there was some kind of perfect being and that this would be a blonde, you know, blue-eyed, white-skinned perfect being harking back to someone who used to exist at some point in time, the Arians used to exist. And there is still that notion out there that there are, there are some people who are better than others, perfect than others, and they are the model for how we want to be. And we see this play out in such interesting ways. I think even in modern-day and everyday life, we all do this, you know, trying to be our best selves, be the best version of yourself. And when we airbrush ourselves on social media, when we go to incredible lengths to diet and dress and, you know, make ourselves look perfect, I think that also speaks to that 
those early eugenic ideas that somehow we, can, we are perfectible and we shouldn't reach towards perfection. And scientists also buy into this. So there, are scientific, there is a scientific movement known as transhumanism, which essentially says we should try and augment ourselves using the technology we have available, using gene editing, using bionic implants, you know, whatever we can, we should make ourselves, improve ourselves. And I think for me, having researched eugenics, and I've just finished making a documentary on it, which went out recently, and what I, what I landed on at the end was, why are we not enough? What makes us so beautiful as humans is our variety, is that within one human being, you can have such talent and skill and also have fallibility and also have failures and weaknesses and what other people might consider ugly features, you know. But that is what makes us human. That is the beauty of it. And in fact, you need that diversity. That's what makes us healthy as a species. To not have diversity would make us, you know, in the case, for example, of the Habsburgs, you know, inbred population. <laughs> These royals who kept breeding with each other in the belief in racial, in this belief in kind of aristocratic purity or whatever, and actually turned out to be completely, you know, like certain dog breeds, just breathe themselves out of existence because you have so many flaws. So it's the diversity that makes us strong. It is the multitude of characters. I don't want to airbrush my kid. You know, I don't want him to be anything other than who he is in, in all his different, with all his differences and all his whatever other people might call quirks or foibles or failures or whatever. That is what makes us human. And we need to be able to embrace that and understand it and not kind of hold up these ideas of perfection. So I think in science what we what we do see, and I think and, and I think we see it because we see it in popular culture, these ideas of perfecting humans and making society somehow better by having these perfect humans in it. This we need to let go of. Um, and when we let go of it, I think we'll, we'll all be mentally better off as a result. But I think also society will be a much healthier society in general when we just accept people who, as who they are and accept how they want to live. Well, I hope you enjoyed that as much as we did, both recording it and listening to it. Um, really, really important stuff, uh, as I said at the beginning, really fascinating stuff. Um, for those of you that found it really interesting and want to read more, uh, Angela's book is called Superior, The Return of Race Science, published by Fourth Estate and Beacon Press. Um, you can get it in all good bookstores, and I'm sure some rubbish ones too. Um, it's really, really worth a read. Loads of important stuff in there for people that are interested in kind of anti-fascism, uh, in racism, kind of contemporary racism, historical racism. So go out and have a look at it get it get involved with it thank you for listening welcome back as i said at the very beginning to the first podcast of 2020 for hope not hate um, plenty more to come we'll endeavor to be as frequent as possible um, hopefully you enjoy them and you, and you like listening to them if you do don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already or if you're new around here um, it's really useful the more subscribers the better please also leave a review if you've got a few seconds say something nice maybe cancel out some of the horrible things written by the far right under everything we do but also on our podcast reviews uh, so have a listen i'm told somehow it's useful and it's good for kind of getting out there and if you're really into what we do, don't forget to join all of our social medias. I can't remember all of them, but we're on all of them. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, etc. Type in Hope Not Hate and find us and, and follow us and find out what we're up to. Um, stick your email address in the website if you're interested in getting more involved with us. We're always excited to hear from you. And uh, on top of all that, if you're really, really keen, none of this happens for free. 
Um, so we always are always asking for money. I always feel embarrassed, but we have to. Um, we've got the Hope Not Hate uh, fund, uh, action fund, which is available where you can kind of give a few pounds a month for ongoing support, which is really central to keeping us floating, keeping us working, um, and keeping us doing all the things that we hopefully think that you want us to do. Um, so please do sign up. Uh, and yeah, we'll speak to you again soon. Thanks.